Oh, Father, we come to you this morning again looking for a word from you. God, I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear whatever it is you have to say. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So two summers ago, uh, my wife Laura decided to sign us up for a a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. It's it's a great thing. And so every uh, every week or every other week, we'd get a a box of produce uh, from a stand at the French Market in downtown Wheaton. And uh, so we'd go pick it up, and there'd be all kinds of, of what to me were very strange items in this box, because this, they would just kind of, whatever the, the crop produced, this is what you'd get. So there was, there was these strange things called leeks. Have you ever heard of these things? They had, they had leeks, and then there, there was uh, some, all kinds of weird vegetables, and then there were, there were, there were these things called uh, microgreens. Now, microgreens, those are the types of things you put in your fridge and you never eat for two weeks and you end up throwing them away. Uh, that, that's what microgreens were. All kinds of strange stuff. But the, the bag of produce looked exact, almost very similar to the bag we'd get you know, from Aldi or a, a shopping bag. And so it, I could tell right away where Laura had gotten our produce for the week from. If it was from Aldi, it was all kinds of stuff I knew. Bananas and apples and carrots and broccoli. If it was from the CSA, it was leeks and microgreens. You see, the fruit within revealed the, the, what the bag actually was. It revealed the truth. It revealed the produce. And we're going to be talking this morning about how do we know if someone is truly a Christian? How do we know if someone is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because, there, let's be honest, there are many who claim the title Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian in our day. But when you look at their lives, they don't really look like Jesus all that much. There are many who go to church and proclaim that they, that, you know, that they like to go to church and all those things. But they aren't any different from non-churchgoers. So how do we know who is truly a follower of Jesus? And we're, this morning, we're continuing our sermon series called Unlocking the Parables. And we're basically going to be discussing every parable that Jesus ever told. And parables, they're earthly stories with a kingdom meaning. They are stories that help us understand the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing into the world. And when Jesus came on the scene in the first century in Israel, there was a question in the air. Who are the true people of God? Who are the true followers? Who, are the, who is the true Israelite? Who is really following the Torah and keeping God's law? And who will really enter the kingdom when it's all said and done? Now, various answers were given to this question. Uh, some, to some, they said, well, it's how well, well you keep the law. Uh, to some, it was your wealth or status that showed you that, oh, yeah, well, God, God must be blessing them if they are wealthy. To others, it was simply your dedication to, to ridding Israel from the foreign powers of Rome. And to some, you simply just had to be a Jew. You were part of the people of God. But Jesus began to confront all of these ideas with his teachings and his parables. And so today I want to look at four parables that answer the question, who are the true people of God? Who are the true people of God? Now, to, just to, to step back aside here, to pull, pull back the curtain on some of my thinking, Jesus told a lot of parables, a lot of parables. And if we were to do only one parable a week, we'd be in the parables all year long. All right, there's, there are that many parables. So when a lot of, I'm not, this is no disparage against other churches, but a lot of times when pastors do sermon series on the parables, they skip all the really difficult ones because you can only do a series for so long, right? So my goal is to hopefully teach the whole counsel of God. I want to even go to the difficult parables. So we, we need to do four today. We're, we're going to do it, do it in a regular sermon, but we're going to talk about four parables that answer this question. Who are the true people of God? Now Israel, this was the nation that God 
had chosen to make himself known in the world. They were supposed to be the people of God, but something had gone wrong. They were still living under foreign oppression with Rome, and God's laws were not being kept. And the Jews, they had an image for this situation, which was why we read Isaiah 5 for our scripture reading this morning. It's a story about a vineyard that's planted and carefully cultivated, but what happens? It only yields bad fruit. And this was a picture of God carefully planting, carefully working with his people, but they only produced the bad fruit of sin and injustice. So who are the true people of God? You have to look at the fruit. What's in the bag? And Jesus tells four stories that tells us what kind of fruit the true people of God will have. And these are the four, so I'm going to have four stories this morning with four points. And we're going to start with the parable of the barren fig tree. This is out of Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. And Jesus tells this story. He said, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The point that I want you to get from this parable this morning is number one, God is patient with us, but he expects fruit. God is patient with us, but he expects fruit. Now in the story, a man is looking for fruit on his fig tree that's in his vineyard, doesn't find any. Now again, vineyard, Isaiah 5, this is an image for Israel, the people of God. It's a well-known image that represents God's people. And he says the people are only producing bad fruit. So in the Jewish mind, unproductive plants, this is an image for the people of God being unfaithful to God, whether it's the nation or individuals. So the man in the story who owns the fig tree, he tells the man, the gardener who takes care of the vineyard, to cut the tree down, to get rid of it. Why? Because unproductive trees shouldn't take up the soil. That would be a waste. So he tells the gardener to cut it down. This symbolizes God's judgment. Jesus is saying Israel, and especially its leaders, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, they are not producing fruit. Because of that, they can expect judgment. This was the same message that John the Baptist began with when the Gospels open up. If you remember John the Baptist, he was a prophet, and he prepared Israel, the people of God, for Jesus' ministry. Now, why don't you look at what John the Baptist said in the very same Gospel in Luke 3. It says this. It's on the screen. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, look, listen. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is warning the nation. He is warning the people of God. Your lives need to produce fruit that comes from repentance. Repentance is turning away from all sin and turning your life over to God in obedience. And when you do that, fruit will be produced in your lives and God will recognize it. But the people want to say, well, we have Abraham as our father. Now, what is that about? Abraham, he was the ancient patriarch. He's the, he's the father of Israel. So to say Abraham is our father is kind of, kind of like saying, well, well, I'm a Jew. 
I'm part of the people of God, so therefore I'm going to be fine. It's kind of like people say today, well, I believe. I believe in Jesus, or I go to church. Surely that will be enough for me on Judgment Day. But John says, produce the fruit of repentance. Even though Israel is God's fig tree in his vineyard, if there is no fruit, it's going to be cut down. Now in the parable, the gardener says, well, just give me one more year. I'll fertilize the thing, I'll put it on life support, and we'll see if anything can come from this tree. Then go ahead and cut it down. Now with this saying, Jesus is extending so much patience and mercy because God has already done so much for this people. He has called them. He has given them the covenant. He has given them the law. He has extended mercy time and time and time again. And he's even saying, there's still time. If you can just but see the truth, if you can just but see the kingdom coming in my life, there is still time for you to repent. But not much. The axe is at the root of the tree. And the same offer is given up to us today. Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, he has offered the entire world mercy and grace and forgiveness. And the question that this parable brings to us is, will you produce the fruit of repentance before it's too late? We have one life to respond to God. Will you repent and put your trust in Christ before our time is up? The message of Jesus here, it's both one of mercy and patience, but it's also a warning, a future judgment. So today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts against him, but put your trust in him. If you feel the Holy Spirit finally leading you, leading you to repent of some sin in your life, cut it out. Don't harden your heart against God. Respond to him because he is patient, but he does expect fruit. That's the first parable. The second parable we're going to be looking at is called the parable of the two sons. The parable of the two sons. It comes from Matthew 21. Verses 28 through 32. You might want to turn there because we're going to be staying in Matthew 21 for the next parable as well. And the story goes like this. Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And that son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Jesus says, which of the two did, the, did what his father wanted? And the leaders answered, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, John the Baptist, came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The point that I want you guys to receive from this parable is this. God doesn't want lip service, but productive obedience. God doesn't want our lip service, but productive obedience. Now, the context of the parable we just read is that Jesus is having a confrontation with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders. He had just recently, if you know the story, he had cleansed the temple of all the money changers and got them out of there, all the people who were exploiting others at the temple. And the leaders are questioning Jesus' authority. Where does your authority come from to do all these things, Jesus? And so Jesus, he's having a little confrontation with these leaders. And so he tells them a parable of two sons. The father tells both of them to go and work in the field today. Now, when I read this story, for some reason, I just picture two teenagers, two teenage guys. And I, I just, I picture the one on the couch watching TV or, or doing whatever. And the father says, well, son, go mow the lawn. And he says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it, dad. 
But then he never goes and does it. He stays there watching TV. This is just how I picture the story. Then I, then I picture the other son texting on his phone, and the, and the father says, okay, son, can you go mow the lawn? And the son says, nah, not, not right now, I'm, I'm busy. But then he realizes later, ah, I should really obey my dad, puts his phone down, and goes and mows the lawn. And then Jesus asks, well, which one of these sons did what his father wanted? Obviously, the one who obeyed, the one who went and mowed the lawn, so to speak. And the, this is, the leaders give this answer. They say, yes, the one who obeyed, the one who actually obeyed, regardless of what they initially said. And so through that, the leaders, they have indicted themselves. This is what Jesus is often doing in parables. He's, elic he's eliciting a self-condemnation that they might come to awareness of the truth. And Jesus is saying that the tax collectors, the prostitutes, these are the ones that people saw listening to John the Baptist and repenting. And these are the ones who are like the son who initially said that they would not obey, but they later went on and obeyed God. They repented at John the Baptist's message, and because of that, they were ready to follow Jesus. Now, the leaders, they're like the son who initially said that they would obey God. They signed up to be leaders of the people. They said, yes, we will help lead the people to follow God. But then when John the Baptist came, they did not obey. They did not listen. And because of that, they were not ready to follow Jesus. So who are the true people of God? Is it the religious leaders? Is it, is it anyone, who's a, <clears throat> anyone who's a Jew? Jesus says, look at the fruit. What's in the bag? The ones who obey God are the true sons and daughters of the king. And the same principle applies to us today. God doesn't just want our lip service to say that, yes, I follow or I, I believe. No, he wants our productive obedience. This story it is a direct demonstration that faith and works go together. They are two sides of the same coin. Faith and obedience go together. And unfortunately, the church has allowed this easy faith. Well, you can just believe, just, just trust, just pray a prayer and you'll, you'll be fine. Just go to church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. Just, just, it's free, it's cheap, you don't have to do anything. But that is a distortion of what Jesus preached. He preached a message of unbelievable grace, but also unbelievable demand. As Klein Snodgrass roughly puts it in his work. And he has another quote that I want to read to you. Klein Snodgrass in his commentary, he says, Any separation of believing and doing is a distortion of the gospel message and is directly confronted by this parable. A person cannot believe apart from obedience. Again, God doesn't just want our lip service if you aren't prepared to obey. People will say their lips, well, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, or I, I believe these things, but then they go on to do whatever they want to do. They're like the son who said, yes, I will go, but then he does not. But the true people of God get to work doing what God has called them to do, including working in his vineyard, in his kingdom, amongst his people. So let's be sure that we are ones who productively obey God. So Jesus, he continues to confront the leaders with a third parable. This parable is often called, it goes by different names, but uh, it's often called the parable of the wicked tenants. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43. It's a little bit longer, so hang with me. Jesus says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Again, vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. 
Last of all, he sent his son to them. He said, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. The point I want you guys to get from this parable is this. God has made Jesus the cornerstone of his kingdom and expects us to build our lives on him. He expects us to build our lives on him. The story, again, it's about a vineyard, common theme, represents God's people, Israel. And the landowner builds a watchtower and a wine press. Now, in Jewish tradition, these came to be uh, symbolizing the temple and the altar. So, God's, so the vineyard, God's people, has a temple and an altar within it, right? That's what God set up. And he turns over the care of the vineyard in the story to tenants. Now, this was standard practice in Israel. You might, you might have an owner of a farm, and they, and they rent out their crop of land to somebody else to take care of it. And then they would collect their share at the end. Now, this, in the story, the servants represent the prophets, the people that God had continually sent to the people to warn them of judgment and to get them to repent. But what do the people do? They reject the prophets over and over and over again. The tenants, they treat the servants harshly. So the landowner, he decides to send his son. And the tenants get the crazy idea that, well, if we kill the son, he obviously has the inheritance and we can get rich off that and then we might be able to claim all the land for ourselves. And so they kill the son in the story. And so Jesus asked the religious leaders, what do you think the owner's going to do to these tenants? Well, of course, he's not going to let them continue. He's going to bring them to an end. No, no common sense owner would let these tenants continue to own the land. He says he's gonna rent, they're going to rent it out to somebody else who will produce the fruit that he wants to see in his vineyard. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. This is one of the most common quotations in the New Testament. It came to, it's a, understood as a prophecy of the Messiah. And he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase, but I think if we look at the Hebrew, you might be able to understand what Jesus is saying here. Now, the word stone in Hebrew is eben, and the word son in Hebrew is ben, eben and ben. Sounds very close, right? And the builders, this would have been understood as the leaders, those who are in charge of caring for the vineyard, the people. So I think it's fair to read this as Jesus saying, the son, the son of the story, the son that the leaders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. In other words, Jesus is giving them a clue. The son of the story is me, the son of God. And the leaders are rejecting him, rejecting me. And the Lord, this is what the Lord is doing, if you could just but see it. So simultaneously, he is judging the leaders. He is saying, you are the ones who are rejecting the son that is coming. But also, it's, he's giving them a clue. Perhaps maybe just a few of them will catch a glimpse of what God is doing. The Lord is doing this. It's marvelous in our eyes. If they could just but see it, they might see that Jesus is the truth. The question that this story asks us is, will people respond to God's son before it's too late? Will they respond to the Son? Will they build their lives on the cornerstone? Will they build their lives on Jesus Christ while they have the time? The same offer is given to all of us. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. 
All other ground is sinking sand. We build our lives on him as God has given us opportunity. Finally, this morning, let's move to our last parable. It's called the parable, again, there's many names, but it's often called the parable of the great banquet. This comes from Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. And Jesus says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, Well, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. On their last point this morning, number four, God is throwing a wonderful party and invites you to join. He's throwing a wonderful party. He invites you to join. Now, in the ancient culture, it was standard practice that you'd get two invitations to a party. You'd kind of get the first one, which is like, essentially like our save the date. Hey, the party's coming. And then when everything was ready, they would get another invitation, inviting them to come. All the preparations have been made. Come and join the feast. Now, the picture of a banquet in the Jewish mind, this was a very common image of the end-time celebration of God's people at the end of the age. And the question that they would have been asking is, who gets to be at the table? Who gets to be in the room? Who is going to be invited to this end-time party and celebration? Who is the true Israelite? Who is the true Torah observer? Who is going to be there? And Jesus tells the story of all these people rejecting this invitation to this party with all kinds of different excuses. And culturally speaking, we are, you're meant to see that these excuses would have been absolutely ridiculous in light of the banquet that's being offered to them. So I, what I do is I, I imagine a family that's preparing for a wedding, as Matthias mentioned, for a son or daughter. You're, they're, you're getting excited. You're making all the preparations. You've, you've selected your vendor. You've selected your, your tux and your dress. And, and you've selected the food you're going to have and the, and the music and all these wonderful things. You've prepared and you've prepared. And you've sent the save the dates way out ahead of time. They look really nice. And you're saying, put this on your calendar now because we want you to come. And then later, the invitation comes in the mail. You get another invitation that says, will you RSVP? Will you come? Now imagine you've done all those preparations, you're so excited about this day, and you, kept, and you keep getting these RSVPs back and says, well, sorry I can't come to your wedding. I just got a new car and I want to test drive it this weekend. Oh, sorry I can't make it to your big day. I planned a date with my wife already and we need to go out to dinner. Sorry I can't make it to your big day. I'm just too busy on the weekends. Sorry. Sorry I can't come. The bears are on and it's opening night. I can't come to your wedding. These would be ridiculous excuses. And now imagine that you got all the invitations you sent out. They all got rejected. And no one's coming to your wedding that you prepared. It would almost make you mad enough at your family and friends to say, you know what, I'm going to go invite strangers to this party because it's already paid for, it's already planned, and it's going to be an amazing banquet. So go and invite everybody to come in. That's what's going on in this story. 
go invite the whole world, the outcasts of society, even anybody and everybody is welcome to come to this party because the people I initially invited are rejecting it. Again, this is a message both of grace and of warning. Jesus is saying the people of God, the ones who were initially invited to the party, they are turning Jesus down. And so God is inviting the whole world in. God invites us to be a part of his kingdom. It's so amazing. It's so full of joy. It's the most wonderful offer you could ever receive. And any excuse to not come would be ridiculous in light of the offer that's being put out to you. So let's be sure that we are not saying with our lips, oh yes, Lord, I'll come. But then we make all kinds of excuses with our lives. And we busy ourselves with all kinds of distractions, the thorns of life that distract us and keep us from the kingdom. I think we often ignore participating in God's kingdom work because we fill our lives with such earthly work and concerns. And Jesus is inviting us, build your life on me. Build your life on me. I am the cornerstone. I am the foundation. And right now I offer you abundant life and there will be a party, a celebration forever in heaven for those who say yes to the invitation. This parable also teaches us to invite others in. God is inviting anybody and everybody. People you think are furthest away that would have no chance of saying yes to Jesus, God is inviting them also. And he's drawing them in with his perfect love. So let me recap. Who are the true people of God? You have to look in the bag. What's, what fruit is in there? The true people of God are those who produce spiritual fruit of repentance. They productively obey God with their lives. They build their life on Jesus Christ. And they say yes to join his invitation to the party of the kingdom. And don't let any excuses get in the way. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for. And so may God give all of us the grace to truly be his pe people and build our lives on Jesus Christ. Amen.